the word this morning, can you open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. Um, it should be up on the screen as, as well if you want to follow along up there, but it is always so good to have it open in your own Bible right in front of you. And then um, you'll read out the whole chapter and see what God has to say to us this morning. So therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the Word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that the extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. For we know that one, for we know that one who raised, we, for we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Father, we just ask that you would bless that word to us right now, that you would speak to us, that you would cut through the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, um, that you would address the things that need to be addressed in our lives, and uh, that you would make us more like you this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, looking at this passage, what I want to do is just work through the passage and pull out some of the key things um, that I think God really wants to highlight here for us this morning. Um, and so the first thing I want to just point um, our focus to is verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. And so the first thing I want to highlight to you is that Paul absolutely sees his um, opportunity to uh, minister um, on the Lord's behalf as a gift that has come to him from God. Here he says that, um, that we have this ministry because we were shown mercy. Now, when you think ministry, don't think necessarily, oh, you know, being an apostle or being a preacher or being a pastor or being some sort of a big deal like that. The word ministry is just the word for service. So um, it, um, it's, it's just a word that you would use to say that you, you're serving someone. It's actually really closely attached to the idea of a slave serving. 
And so when ministry is mentioned in God's Word, it's not just referring to those of us that have been ordained and are recognized by denomination or anything of that sort. No, no, it's, it's all of us. We are all in the ministry together. We are, we are all been given gifts. We've all been given talents. We've all been given a calling, and we're all supposed to be coming together, serving God and serving one another in that capacity. But notice that Paul recognizes that he has this ministry because he was shown mercy, so as a sinful man, he's been welcomed into the service of a holy God. Or as a weak man, he's been commissioned to this incredibly noble task. And he sees that as an absolute mercy from God. It is a gift from God. And so I want to highlight that first up because um, I think quite often in the Christian church, we tend to think about service as some sort of a burden. We tend to think about service as um, a, um, a thing that weighs us down, something that we unfortunately have to do as Christians, or something that we've been, we've been punished and now we um, need to do. But that's not at all how the ministry should be viewed. If you rightly recognize just how beautiful He is, and just how good He is, and just how kind He has been to you, and how good He has been to you, ministry and service is just the natural overflow. Now, I, I remember when um, I was in primary school, um, sometimes you would have the high schoolers come down to the primary school. So you're like in grade three, you're in grade four, and the high schoolers are coming down to the primary to run activities with the primary school kids and things like that. Now, when you're in grade three and grade four, and there's a grade nine or a grade 10 or a grade 11, grade 12 are coming down to spend time with you, it is just the coolest thing in the world. It's like, and if that, if that grade 12 asks you to do something for them, like go and pick something up or go put some rubbish in the bin or something that you'd normally drag your feet about, if a grade 12 asks you to do it, you would gladly jump up and do it straight away. Like things that your parents ask you to do as a kid that you mumble and grumble over, if a grade 12 cool kid asks you to do it, you'd happily do it. And so, but what's, what's going on there? It's because as a primary school kid, you think this older kid is just so amazing, they're just so good. They're just so awesome. And so when they ask you to do something, you happily re respond by wanting to serve. And that's what's going on here for the Apostle Paul. He says that, man, I was shown mercy. I was a terribly sinful man. God met me in my sin, and now he's commissioned me to his service. He goes on to talk about how I'm an incredibly weak man. So I don't have much to offer. I don't have much strength. But nonetheless, God has called me to this incredibly noble task. And so he sees it as a privilege. He sees it as a gift. And so I just want to encourage you with that this morning. Service in the life of the church should never be a burden for us. It shouldn't be a burden for us to participate in one another's lives and to lay down our lives to one another or to lay down our lives for the, the lost and hurting community. It should not be a burden. If we see Him rightly, it should cause us just to naturally overflow by wanting to selflessly love people in service. It's the first thing I want to point out. But um, what is Paul specifically referring to here as he's talking about ministry? Like what in this chapter is he, is he highlighting? Let's go read verse 2 and verse 6 again. He said, Instead we have renounced secret and shinful, I'm sinful, we have re renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel it is, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is this ministry that Paul is referring to specifically here in this chapter? Well, in chapter 3, he spoke about how this ministry that we've received is a ministry that brings about transformation. And it's a ministry that brings about life. And it's a ministry that brings about freedom. Um, In comparison to the old covenant that couldn't bring any of those things to people, he says, now in the new covenant, we are ministers of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is using us to bring about life and righteousness and transformation and freedom for, for people. But then here in chapter 4, he specifically goes on and explains to us that the way that God does this is by putting on display the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. That is awesome. The way that God brings about freedom and transformation and, and all these incredible blessings in other people's lives is by Him putting on display in our lives the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's why he uses this language of light so much here in this chapter, because it's the imagery that he wants to display. It's like as God comes and meets you and floods you with his light, inevitably that light ends up shining from you so that other people can behold the light of Jesus Christ. So it's in your deeds. It's the way you treat people. It's how you relate to people. It's the way you lay down your life in service for people, but it's how you speak as well. It's what you tell them about Jesus Christ. It's how you exalt Him in conversation with people. Through these things, God is shining the light of Jesus Christ. And the most crazy thing happened, people end up encountering the Lord Jesus Christ through you. Now, I'm sure that if I asked you to sit down for a moment and think for a minute or two about people that you know in your life, Christians that you know in your life that meet that description, we could all think of a bunch of people that you spend time with them and it's just like Jesus is radiating from them. You spend time with them, you walk away from a conversation with them and you are just so much more in love with Jesus just because you spent time with that person. I remember I had this Bible college um, um, lecturer, Peter Law, some of you know him because he um, visited church one time and spoke runs a missions organization, and he was like that. He was like, a lot of the time, unfortunately, Bible college felt like pulling out teeth when you're sitting there in these lectures, and you're just like digging through Old Testament history, and it's just like, this scholar says this, and this scholar says that, and this scholar says that, and you spend three hours listening to what all the different scholars say, and you're no closer to figuring out what you should think. Um, That was a lot of what Bible college was like, but Peter Law wasn't like that. When Peter Law stood up and he would speak, about Jesus, or he'd speak about the mission, or he'd speak about just God's heart for people, you would walk out of that room feeling like you're on fire for Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, that was the time where Jesse came into my life, and I had a little bit of a complex at that time that I wanted to go and die for Jesus on a mission field. But I blame Peter Law for it, because he got me so excited for Jesus. I was like, I just need to go die for Jesus somewhere. Um, it was pretty confronting for Jesse when, um, when I, like early stages of us just starting to date, and we're talking through this whole dating thing. I was like, so I just got to make sure that you're ready to go die with me somewhere one day. And um, she agreed to it. So, um, so I like to remind her of that. Whenever we have marriage struggles now, I'm like, well, I consider what we're experiencing now to be less than what it would have been like if we had to go die on a mission field. So you agree to that. You can't really be upset with this. Uh, <laughs> um, so... Um, Yeah, so how does this ministry happen? How does it take place? It's 
you becoming so full of the light of Jesus that it radiates from what you do and from what you say. The people inevitably end up falling in love with Jesus and wanting to follow him. So Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So as the glory of God radiates from your life and people encounter it, it actually compels people to repent of this sin and to follow after Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul goes on and he says, so this is his ministry, but he adds and says that therefore we don't need to use trickery in order to win people over to follow Jesus Christ. So he says, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God. In other words, this thing has so much innate flavor to it that I don't need to go adding flavor. Like the, the glory of Jesus Christ, when you encounter it in someone else's life, is so powerful that you don't need to go adding salt to this thing and pepper to this thing and adding things onto it to try and somehow bring the flavor out of it and convince people that it's really good. It's already good enough in and of itself. It's like those mid-morning um, things that come up on TV, you know, the marketing shows. It's like the news finishes and then there's always someone that comes on and like tries to sell a blender or tries to sell a vacuum cleaner or something like that. And it's just like, well, I've never actually bought anything from these people, but I'm always like, I'm not buying your vacuum cleaner or your blender if you need to convince me to buy it because if I buy it, I'm going to get three free fridge magnets thrown in or I'm going to get 30% off if I call in the next five minutes. Like, if you need to pressure me in that sort of way to sign up for your vacuum cleaner, I'd rather not have your vacuum cleaner. I'd rather go and buy a vacuum cleaner that just entirely sells itself and doesn't need all the extra pressure and trickery added onto it. But lots of people feel this sort of pressure when it comes to the Christian life. It's like, we're not so convinced that the glory of Jesus Christ put on display in our lives is good enough to win people over. And so we need to create these massive events to pull people in. Or so we need to go and set up our church in an exact particular way and run our services in an exact particular way or, or do all these special things in order to get people in. But we don't need those things. The power of the kingdom is found in us looking like Jesus Christ. Full stop. As you know Jesus, you become like him and his glory radiates out from your life. And then you take that into your sporting team. You take that into your workplace. You take that into your family. Jesus is going to ooze out of you and he's going to bring about transformation. And so Paul's saying, we don't need all that trickery. We don't need that stuff. Jesus is being put on display in our lives and it's bringing freedom, transformation for all these people. Now, there's a few more things that he highlights for us here in this passage about how we actually go about doing that. And if I'm honest, what I just mentioned before is the good stuff. That's like, woohoo, that's exciting. Let's get on board for that. It's the next stuff that we're way slower to embrace as Christians. But it is absolutely essential if we're actually going to have a life that radiates Jesus. The first thing that Paul tells us to do is that we need to embrace our weakness because that's what he's doing so he tells in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from god and not from us ah clay jars he could have said you know like this powerful ministry so we are like the fiery angels of god on mission with him. 
Or we're like a soldier that you don't want to mess with. Like he could have said something like that, you know, that fits this powerful ministry that he just described, like something big and impressive and powerful. And, but he says, no, we have this treasure in clay jars. The glory of God comes and sits inside of an earthen vessel. A clay jar wasn't anything special. Everyone in the ancient Middle East had a clay jar in their house. Everyone knows how fragile a clay jar is. Everyone knows how weak a clay jar is. Everyone knows that there's nothing to it by itself that's particularly strong that, that recommends a clay jar. Like you could have said like a silver vessel or a golden vessel or at least a metal vessel, but he says a clay jar. This is exactly how the Apostle Paul viewed himself. He saw himself as just a weak man. He doesn't liken himself to a fiery angel or to a really impressive soldier that no one wants to mess with or with a golden vessel. No, here he likens himself to a weak man because he understood that he was just a weak man. In fact, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, he'll spend a whole bunch of time saying to the Corinthians that they forced him to start boasting about his weakness. Because what's going on is that here in this chapter, you've got these super apostles that have rocked up in Corinth, and they're showing up with their resumes. They've got these letters that were signed by the surrounding churches about how fantastic they were as orators and preachers and leaders. They, they were really eloquent in speaking, and they were trying to pull the Corinthian church to follow after them instead of after the apostle Paul. And so the apostle Paul in trying to expose the folly of the Corinthians, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, he says, now you guys have forced me to start boasting. I'm going to essentially start boasting just like these super apostles are boasting. But Paul entirely turns the logic on its head because these guys are boasting about how fantastic they are. And the apostle Paul starts boasting about how much he's suffered, how he's been mistreated, how many scars he's got on his body because of the gospel, how many sleepless nights he's had, how hungry he's been, how he's been imprisoned, how he's been shipwrecked. That's what he starts boasting about, and he totally pulls the rug out from underneath these so-called super apostles. He says, these guys that are bragging about these things of the flesh are demonstrating that they're not true servants of God, because the true servants of God do not boast in how good they are in and of themselves. They are well acquainted with their weaknesses, and they're happy to let those weaknesses show so that the glory of God can rest upon it, and the majesty of Jesus can be put on display. So he starts boasting about it in chapter 11 and 12. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. Because most of the time, I don't feel all that strong. Most of the time, I don't feel like I'm fit for what God has called me to do. Most of the time, I'm asking God, saying, God, why have you got me here? Like, I love what I'm doing in this church, and I love, you know, my role here in the life of the church, but most of the time, I'm in conversation with God saying, God, this is way above me, to be honest with you. And so if I'm reading the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles saying, hey, I'm a weak man, and I'm just like a clay jar, that does so much good for my heart, because I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I feel like. 
if I compare what I'm supposed to do in carrying this treasure with who I am, God, I feel just like a clay jar. And that shows up in my life in two specific ways. And I think it's the two ways that Paul's highlighting here as well. The first is that, like I mentioned before, is I just don't feel adequate for the call. When I look at my gifting, when I look at what the Lord's entrusted to me, when I look at my experience, I mean, like just, just you people in, your room, in, in this room here, the amount of needs that are in your lives and the amount of things that you're working through and the gifting that God's placed on you that needs to be fanned into flame and the need out there in the community that's directly going to be um, connected to how much you're thriving. So I've got to get you thriving to reach the community. Like just what's happening in this room, I don't have the gifting for it. I don't. So there's that issue. Already mentioned it. The second issue is just, I just lack strength. You know, there's this thing that happens in ministry is that you get criticized a lot. Unfortunately, you know, the thing that happens to pastors, you're probably the only person that has shared your criticism this year. Turns out not. We get criticism a lot. People share their opinions on all sorts of things happening in the life of the church and they expect you as the pastor to fix it. You know, you, you have one bung sermon on a Sunday morning, someone will end up telling you about it. That's just my experience, right? And that's just as it relates to ministry. That's not relating all the other pressures that come along with family life and all the other pressures that come along with finances and all the other pressures that come along with just how my mind naturally works and the internal battles that I have within myself. Like, that's not even including all those things. But I absolutely feel like a clay jar. It's like, I'm overwhelmed one day, I'm feeling really burdened the next day, I'm feeling anxious the next day, feeling fearful about something else. But the fact that the Apostle Paul, this man that was used so massively by the Lord, after all his years of experience and all his knowledge, and the things that he had seen, like he did, later on in Corinthians describes how he went up into the heavenlies and beheld things that he's not even allowed to speak about. If this man could speak about his weakness, how inadequate he is for the task and how overwhelmed he gets, then that does a whole ton to comfort my heart. And I hope it's the same for you as well. When God calls us into his service, he's not asking for people that have it all put together. Yes, he wants holiness, okay? That's pursue holiness, it's really important. But when it comes to your gifting, when it comes to your ability to cope, he's not asking that you'd be all put together. He's simply asking that you would yield yourself, give yourself over to him so that he can sustain you. He wants to take your brokenness and your mess and you feeling overwhelmed and burdened, and through that weakness, put on display the sufficiency of His grace. Because it makes it abundantly clear to everyone looking on that not Pat is so good, or Anna is so good, or Alan is so good, but that Jesus is so good. And that's what people really need. That's the first thing. He says He embraced his weakness. So Jesus is not after a whole bunch of powwow Christians. Instagram will tell you that's what you need to be. You know, you scroll through Instagram, you just, everyone seems like they're just powwow. Like they're just awesome, man. Their ministry is killing it. They're just amazing. 
That's not what he's after. Embrace your weakness. He'll use it, demonstrate his power. The second thing that he draws our attention to is um, taking up our cross. Of course, he doesn't use that language, but he describes it. So verse 8 to verse 12, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. So how does the glory of Jesus radiate through you? Number one, embrace your weakness. Number two, take up your cross. The life of Jesus is made manifest through you as you embrace the death of Jesus. You guys have heard me use this phrase a whole ton over the last couple of years, and that is life by death. Life by death. The more you embrace death, the more you on the other side of that experience resurrection life. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of good that we experience because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It's absolutely true. The new creation has been ushered in, and it's doing amazing things in our lives and in the world. But the more you want to experience new creation life in the here and now, you have to go through that same grave. It's the only way you get out the other side, is going through that grave, going through death. It's you being pulled through the eye of the needle so that all the muck that is attached to your life can be squeezed out of you, and you can come out glorious on the other side, experiencing the life of God. So what does Paul say he had to experience? He says that he was afflicted, he was perplexed, he was persecuted, that he carried the death of Jesus in his body, that he was given over to death, and that death was at work in us. That is not a pleasant description by any means. Later on, he tells us specifically what he was referring to when he was talking about this experience. I want to read to you the two passages because he gives us two lists of the things that he went through here in 2 Corinthians um, of what he had to go through. So let me read them out for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 to verse 10. It should be up on the screen. It says, We are not giving um, anyone an occasion for offense so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying yet seen we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, hooray, not killed at least, verse 10, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That's one list that he gives us of what he went through as he chose to take up his cross. The second list is in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. He says, five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. So that's one lash shy of the death sentence. 40 lashes is the death sentence. So one lash shy of the death sentence. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I've faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. So why all this suffering? Like, why all of this? Well, I can tell you that the Apostle Paul did not have a martyr complex like I did when I sat under Peter Law and was like, oh, Jesus deserves to be died for. I'm going to go die for him. Like, that's not what was going on in the Apostle Paul's thinking. He's not just like, oh, yeah, suffering's great, so therefore I'm going to suffer. Find suffering. Find someone to throw a rock at me. Let's go find it. That's not the Apostle Paul. The only reason the Apostle Paul suffered the way that he did was because of love. That was it. Love constrained him to go into the Jewish synagogue and speak to his people that he knew by the majority were going to turn their back on him. Love compelled him to travel the known world on foot and preach the gospel to Gentiles that otherwise would have no hope of hearing about the salvation of Jesus. It was love that made him go and spend time with the orphan and spend time with the widow and labor to see them taken care of. It was love that compelled him. And so when Jesus invites us to take up a cross, he's inviting us to let that love that we've experienced be made manifest in our lives even if it costs us everything. That's the whole point in taking up the cross. Just as Jesus, out of love, came from heaven to earth to die, to redeem us, we too embrace death so that the mission of Jesus can continue finding its fulfillment through us. So how do we see Jesus being put on display through our lives so that men and women are compelled to follow after him? It looks like you and I selflessly laying down our lives. The more we try to protect our lives, protect our comforts, protect our reputation, protect our privileges, protect our rights, the more we try to protect these things and hold on to them, the more we actually forfeit the power of God. The more you just let go of these things and be as a dead man that's about to be nailed to the cross that has no rights and just lay down your life in serving people, it's exactly on that that the power of God falls and Jesus gets put on display. We're entering into seriously well, times where we as Christians are going to be tested in this in some really radical ways. You can see it happening in the States already. We're starting to see signs of things like that happening in our own country with le legislation shifting and all sorts of things like that. Where it's going to get harder and harder for us as Christians. Our privileges and our rights and our freedoms that we've stood upon for so long that are good things. We're going to see those things getting encroached on. And are we going to be a people that are just all about defending our rights and arguing and standing up and all those sorts of things? Or are we going to be a people who just continue to selflessly lay down our lives in service? These are some very real questions that we're going to be confronted with. And we're going to see the church struggle to work these things through. Side note, do not hear me wrong. I'm not saying that it's bad to have freedoms and everything like that. Sure, like go and fight for the, vote for whoever you think is going to bring about most freedom so that we can be a religious society where there's 
a, a society where there's freedom of religion. Sure, that's good. But when those things get taken away, are you going to have a dummy spit over it, throw a tantrum over it, demand that your rights be given back, or continue on the path of the cross and selflessly serve? There's only one way that the glory of God is going to be put on display, and it's through taking up our cross. It's life by death. Sorry, so there was two things there, not three things. I've got three things in the next section I want to point out. So two things there is how do we see the um, life of Jesus made manifest in us? Let's embrace our weakness and take up the cross. And just as another side note, I also just want to highlight that when Paul's talking about his weaknesses here in this passage, he's not talking about sickness and he's not talking about demonization. Christians quote this passage all the time saying that they're just going to be okay with this sickness and they're just going to be okay with this thing that they're enslaved to because His grace is sufficient for them. You see them particularly doing it with chapter 12, where Paul says that he embraces his weaknesses because he's come to realize that in his weakness, the sufficiency of God's grace is revealed. Christians quote that all the time when it refers to them battling cancer or struggling with some sort of an issue like that or a a prodigal child that's walked away from the Lord. And that's not what that passage is talking about. Context is so important. When you read what he's talking about in this letter, when he's talking about weakness, every single time he's talking about weakness, he's talking about his own personal struggles with how hard the ministry life is. He's talking about the persecution, the opposition. He's saying it's in that context where he embraces the life of suffering. In other words, weakness, that the sufficiency of God's grace is revealed. That's really important there. You can go check that out for yourself encourage you, that passage in chapter 12 talking about the sufficiency of His grace and our weakness, go and read chapter 11. He doesn't talk about sickness or about demonization or anything of the sort at all in that chapter. So context matters so much. So um, with these things in mind, then how can we expect the life of Jesus to be at, at work in us? So we spoke about how the life of Jesus is going to be put on display so that people can come to know Him. But there's three specific things I want to highlight just as like, what is this life that's going to come from embracing this clay jar-like um, lifestyle? The first thing the point of the Paul encourages us with is the life that will be revealed in us. So he says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16, it says, Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Now also, we can't quote that passage, our outer person is being destroyed, you know, just because we're growing old. You know, like, I sometimes feel like I can start quoting that passage. Just this morning, I got out of bed and had to lie down and do stretches. I came in here in the office to start doing some sermon prep this morning and had to do stretches on the ground because my back was so tight. And, you know, the body's being destroyed, but my inner life is being renewed. Unfortunately, that's not what Paul's talking about. Um, I would do a lot better if I just took eight better and did some exercise and things like that. Um, But he's talking about this. He said, like, in the midst of all this hardship that I get for serving Jesus... I'm actually okay in the midst of all of it because my inner person is being renewed day by day. In um, verse 8 to verse 12, he fleshes it out for us even more because he says how he was afflicted in every way, but then he says, but I was not crushed. And he says that um, he was perplexed, but he was not in despair, and that he was persecuted, but not abandoned, and not destroyed, so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in his body, so that the life of Jesus may be displayed in his mortal flesh, and that the life of Jesus may be at work in you. So as we embrace this 
life of weakness and this life of taking up our cross, Paul's saying that it is really hard. Like, just know that as a Christian. It is hard. The hardship is not going to go away. You're like a pilgrim passing through. This is not your homeland. It is going to be hard. Jesse and I were having a big conversation about this just last night. But like be, um, before bed, we were talking about this in depth because just like, why is it always so hard? It's like you just expect that at some point it's not going to be hard anymore. Like, I don't know. I like this. This is something in the back of my head, something in my heart that's like always just hoping that like, I don't know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get over this mountain. Like I'm going to scale this mountain, get to the top. And it's actually going to be the summit. Like, I'm going to be there, and there's going to be nothing left to climb. But it's like, you just climb that mountain, and you get to the top, and you realize that there's a whole other Everest awaiting you. And then you scale that thing for the next two years, and you're like, I made it. Oh, no, there's another one. It just keeps on going. The, the hardship doesn't go away. So we were talking about this last night. We were like, oh, just wish it would stop. It's too much. Paul's telling us here, it's, it's, it's quite nuanced, really. He's saying, like, yeah, it is too much, in a sense. Like, it is too much. It does feel like taking up a cross and then being nailed to it. It's like, yeah, we're afflicted, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. We carry the death of Jesus in our body. But then he adds something that feels like it should be a contradiction, but it's not. Because as Christians, we've, we've experienced this. It says this inner renewal that somehow keeps you going. So we experience this stuff, but somehow we're not crushed. And somehow we don't end up being stuck in despair. And somehow we know we're not abandoned. And somehow the life of Jesus still ends up being manifested in our body. Like you scale that, man, like not another one. And so you just start with it again. You start making your way up. And somehow along the way, you're like, I'm still moving. I'm still, I'm still taking steps. Like I'm still moving upward. And I feel more in love with Jesus than what I felt last week and my goodness I can see him working through me more and more and then you you keep going and it's still hard and it's still hard but somehow God keeps on supernaturally giving you that inner renewal that you need to keep on moving so with the suffering that we experience as brothers and sisters in the family of God have compassion on one another like the struggles that we're all going through like we are all experiencing it so when that brother or sister is having a really bad week or a really bad month or a really bad year, recognize that, yeah, this is part of the challenges of the Christian life and they probably need someone to get on their level with them and just encourage them and pray for them and build them up and just remind them that, hey, I know this mountain feels massive right now, but Jesus has promised to keep on renewing you day by day. So just keep moving and he'll keep on renewing. So encourage one another like that, but know it for yourself as well. As you embrace your weakness, as you take up your cross, Jesus will make sure the tank never runs dry. There will always be enough for you to keep on moving forward. So he sustains you in it, and he transforms you in it. The second thing that we see as Jesus is put on display in us is that that life flows out of, it to, out of us to others. We've spoken about this a bit already, so I'm not going to highlighted too much, but he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, says, so then death is at work in us, he says, but life in you. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And then verse 15, he says, indeed, everything is for your benefit, 
that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. So that's why Paul brags about his suffering later on in the church, to, to the, um, in this letter to the, let's try again, in this letter to the church at Corinth. Because he's recognizing that the more he suffers for them, the more the life of Jesus actually flows through him for their benefit. So he's embracing the suffering, saying it's actually a good thing, guys, that I'm suffering the way that I am, not a bad thing. I know these super apostles are looking down on me because I suffer the way that I suffer, but actually, it's a good thing because it's working out for your good, Corinth. So Jesus spoke to this when he said in John 12, verse 24, he says, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself, but if it dies, it produces much fruit. So who are you loving on this moment that you desperately want them to see the beauty of Jesus being put on display? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's a long-time friend. Maybe you're married to someone that's not a believer. Maybe it's a work colleague. Who knows who the, who the person is? If you want to see the life of God channel through you and touch that person's life and transform them, it's going to be vital that you take on a lifestyle of laying down your life for that person. It's as you die that the life of God flows through you and starts working in that person's life. So Jesus says, if a seed remains by itself, it's just a single seed. There's no fruit that comes from that seed. That seed's protecting its life. It's not going to get sown. It, nothing's going to come from it. But the moment that seed gets sown, it's buried. It goes into the ground. It dies. There's a multiplication that ha takes place, and fruit comes up from that seed. That's what it's like in your life. Now, I talk so much about parenting around here because it's one of the main things that we're challenged with and working through, but I'm always confronted with the struggle as a parent. Always confronted with the struggle because as a parent, you feel like you've got rights. You know, like I've got rights to like my mental sanity. Like I've got rights to like just having 20 minutes to lie down without anyone coming into the room. I've got rights for you people to sit in the back of the car and just to be quiet for a little bit so I can listen to a song. Like you feel like you've got these rights, you know. And then the worst thing happens is that when they then misbehave, we lash out in anger and in frustration a lot of the time towards them. And like if I'm honest, I just recently had a conversation with one of my boys where the Lord really convicted me. And because he had told lies quite a few times that day. And, um, and I was saying to him, why are you always lying to me? Why are you always lying to me? Why are you, why are you all day today you've been lying to me? And I was talking out of a place of frustration. Um, and I said to him, why are you, why are you always lying? And it's it really interesting. He basically quoted Romans 7 to me. He's like, I know, Daddy. I don't know why I do it. I don't know what I do. Like, basically just quoted Romans 7 to me, and I was like, oh, I'm acting like the law, condemning him. I'm just shaming him. Like, like, it was like this real confrontational moment where I realized that I was actually talking to him and trying to make him feel really bad for lying, which is exactly what the law does. It comes and rests upon us with a sense of condemnation. It says, you're not good enough. You're not doing good enough. Why are you acting like this? But there's no freedom in that. It just makes a person feel even more enslaved and entrapped. But we do that as parents because we're trying to protect our own life. It's like this kid's, 
inconveniencing. He's making me angry. He's affecting my reputation. I want them to be a, goodly, a godly person. It's, it's, it's frustrating. It's taken so long for them to change. And so we act out like that, but that's not how we produce fruit. The way that you produce fruit in anyone's life that you're trying to serve, your kids, your spouse, your friends, your colleagues, is by you dying to yourself. It feels so counterintuitive, but it's the only way that the kingdom of God actually flows to bring about transformation. And so um, we embrace death, taking up our cross so that others can be transformed. And the last thing is the way that we experience life as clay jars is that it's actually accumulating for us life in future glory. Um, so 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, verse 18, Paul says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. If the Apostle Paul can call all of his struggles a light and momentary affliction, then I'm sure I could do a bit better in getting some perspective on the trials that I'm going through. But just to be clear, he's not saying it's a light and momentary affliction in and of itself. In and of itself, it's horrible, it's terrible, it's really bad. But he says it's a light and momentary affliction in comparison to what is going to be revealed to us one day. So yeah, what you're experiencing is really bad right now. But what you will experience one day is so good that the bad right now is just almost going to be entirely forgotten. And so he says, he fixes his eyes on that. If he fixes his eyes on the circumstances and how hard it is and how difficult it is, you know, and how long this person is taking to be transformed, it's overwhelming. But as you fix your eyes on the future and knowing that, okay, God will, number one, he will renew me. Number one, God's promised that he's going to work through me to touch them. But ultimately, if I'm not renewed, which I am, but, and ultimately, if I'm not going to see this person transformed, then I know my faithfulness will be rewarded one day. That there is an eternity, like an age without end coming for us, and it's really just a blink away. Like, really, just a blink away. Like, it is, it is around the corner for, for all of us. We feel like it's not, but it's just around the corner. James said, our life is nothing more than a vapor. It's here for a moment, and then it's gone. And Paul's saying that, guys, take heart. The suffering that you're experiencing right now as you embrace your weakness and you take up your cross, it is actually accumulating for you a greater weight of glory in the future. And ultimately, at the end of the day, what could compare? What could compare to living your life, right? 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, however long the Lord gives you, right? If you get a good run, right? It's that much. What could compare to living your life here and then getting to the end and standing before your creator and having him look at you and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's blessings. Like what could ever compare to that? The knowing that you've run your race well and you're gonna get to the end and God will actually hand to you a crown and acknowledge your faithfulness. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but that grips my heart like an obsession. I cannot think of anything better than running this race well and getting to the end and having God approve of how I've lived my life. 
And Paul is saying, so take heart, it is nothing is going to waste. Like not one moment is being forgotten. Every single tear that you've shed in the secret place as you've interceded for someone's salvation. Like every moment of groaning. Like every time that you were rejected and trying to point someone to Jesus. Like every single time that you were criticized for serving Jesus. Every single thing. It is all accumulating for you a greater weight of glory. And one day, when you experience that glory, it'll be so magnificent and so overwhelming that you will look back on everything you had to go to and go through and you will see it as though it was just nothing more than a light and momentary affliction. Paul says something very similar in Romans 8. He says, the Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. It's not even worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So I think absolutely He's talking about us being blessed and us being rewarded. But more than anything, I think what he's really talking about is just beholding him and being with him. More than anything, that is what all this is for. To run this race well and to get to the end and be able to just delight in him and experience him and gaze upon him, that will be more than enough that we will say, Nothing I experienced can even compare to how good this is. So I want to give that to you as an, as an encouragement. Um, this morning, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Therefore, we do not give up. Therefore, we do not give up. <laughs> That's why we don't give up. It's right there. That's why we keep on pressing on. Therefore, we do not give up. Um, um, Hudson Taylor, um, who was the missionary that basically cracked open inla inland China um, for, the, for the gospel, like it was this unreached place. Um, there were a few men that had gone, but Hudson Taylor just opened the gates wide open, and it was just a flood of missionaries that went into China. And um, they saw hundreds of thousands of people coming to salvation. Many of the revivals that moved through China was birthed out of the mission work that he actually started. And um, Hudson Taylor um, was famous for saying this. He said, all God, God's giants, let me start that again. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. All the giants of the Christian faith that have done great things for God were at the end of the day nothing more than weak men that just banked on the fact that God was with them. And it's going to be the exact same for us as we see God working in us and working through us. So music team, come on up if you can, that'd be great. The rest of you wanna please join in standing. Awesome. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are so grateful that you are so good. 
and that um, you've given us this incredible privilege, Lord, of being in your service, just like the Apostle Paul said. Well, that you've been so merciful to us that you've allowed us, God, to um, be workers in your vineyard, to be um, kings that get to reign with you and priests that get to minister to you. And Lord, we are truly, from the depths of our hearts, so grateful that you have entrusted this to us. But Lord, we'll just confess to you this morning that we find it hard, um, but it is hard most of the time. And um, we know that you know exactly um, what it is like because you became a man and you experienced all of our weaknesses, Lord. You experienced all of our suffering. Lord, all of the ridicule, all the rejection, all the mockery, all the pain, all the heartache. Lord, you walked that path long before we walked it. And it ultimately cost you your life, Lord. As you died for those that you love and they wouldn't receive your love. And so, Lord, I just thank you that that is who you are and that is what you are like. And God, that is such an encouragement for our hearts this morning. Lord, to know that it is hard, but that you've walked this path before us. And we're just following in your footsteps, as Paul said, completing your sufferings. But Lord, we just want to ask you this morning that you would refresh us once again. You've promised us there in your word, Lord, that you will renew us day by day. And so as we keep moving forward, Lord, and as we keep on learning what it looks like to live the cruciform life, we just ask that you would, Lord, continue to sustain us by your spirit. Please give us that joy and give us that peace and give us that contentment in you that we so desperately need, Lord. But even just this morning, we want to afresh just cast all our burdens on you, cast all our worries and concerns on you, God things that have been overwhelming us, Lord, we just want to give them back to you and ask that you would just refresh us once again. But not only that, God, we ask that you would remind us of how you've promised to work, Lord, that you've promised that you will use our lives like a seed. God, that as we die, you've said that you'll bring about fruit. And Lord, we want that. We want others to come to see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, we want our friends and family members, God, and work colleagues, we want them to encounter you through our lives. And so, God, we just ask that you would please do that. So we embrace the weakness, God, and as we join in suffering with you, Lord, would you put on display your extraordinary power? And I'd also just ask that you'd help us to keep our eyes fixed on what is not seen. Lord, to remember that not a single bit of suffering will be forgotten by you, but you remember all of it. And one day, Lord, you will bring us into your kingdom where there is fullness of joy. And you will reward, Lord. And you will recognize where we have been faithful, God. And we can't wait for that day to hear those words come from your lips. So please help us just to keep our eyes fixed on that. And forgive us, Lord, for how quickly we forget and how quickly we grumble and how quickly, Lord, we don't respond in love, Lord, to those that mistreat us or don't appreciate us. Forgive us for all these things as well and just free us from it. So, Lord, we just thank you that you're such a good God. And um, 
Yeah, we, we love you, Jesus, with all of our hearts. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.